This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 89 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. A few weeks ago, I had oral surgery to remove two broken teeth. I spent a painful week following the surgery, and that week coincided with the warmest weather of the year. Now, typically during those first few warm days of spring, I create a long mental list of things I need to do, things to accomplish raking, readying garden beds, fertilizing, on and on and on and on. You know, in the Northeast, those first warm days are like a starter gun, right? Beginning the countdown to our short days of spring and summer. So much to do, so little time. But this year, during that miraculous first week of warmth, I had to sit still. The sun was streaming in the open windows and the spring air soothed and distracted my focus on a throbbing mouth. But it took me a couple of days to relax, despite feeling lousy, despite having no energy, and despite being told by the oral surgeon not to do anything strenuous anyway. But I struggled to relax struggled to relax into the sunny, beautiful weather and fresh air. Even while sitting outside in the sun, I was like a restless racehorse, thinking about what I could be doing, what I should be doing, instead of just being in those beautiful days. Spring explodes, despite the gentleness of the new tree buds, delicate grasses, fragile daffodils, life that was hidden explodes. Much of the time, we don't even notice the powerful calling force of life inside of us or calling us from the outside. But I was quiet enough, I heard the spring shout. Now, I didn't feel the explosion of life in my healing body as it was recovering But my anxious brain certainly responded, and it called for a certain balance, a balance that can only be achieved by being body, heart, and mind in whatever is now. But I couldn't relax. I was restless because despite the beautiful smells, 
the sounds, the feelings of the now of spring all around me, I wasn't really there. My attention was on another time, a time that could have been, a time that might have been in the future where I was accomplishing things on my mental list. And this all reminded me of the sixth of the Noble Eightfold Path, right effort. It's sometimes referred to as diligence, and it's also referred to as joyous effort. And it also reminded me of episode 13 of this podcast, which was called Right Effort, Joyful Balance. You know, I wrote episode 13 on Labor Day of 2018. Now here here it is five years later at the beginning of spring and easy days. I am re-releasing the episode to celebrate not Labor Day, but May Day this year. May Day has historic traces similar to Labor Day, commemorating the struggle for an eight-hour working day. But generally, May Day is more commonly known as an ancient festival marking the beginning of summer, about halfway between the spring equinox and summer solstice. With traditional celebrations, including gathering wildflowers and green branches and weaving floral garlands and setting up the maypole or the may tree or the may bush for people to dance around. You notice they're not striving, efforting, but they're dancing. And it's also known as Beltane, marking the coming summer So, on this May Day, 2023, I'll let my restlessness and inability to relax and enjoy the beginning of summer serve as an example for you, a time to pause and consider whether your efforts in life are right. Are they in balance? Are you trying to be perfect? Are you so consistently focused on self-perfection and achievement that you're unable to relax? The Buddha's teachings of right effort embodies this sense of balance. Titnat Han said about it, quote, the fourfold right diligence is nourished by joy and interest. Tupton Chodron taught, quote, we Westerners sometimes have a hard time cultivating a mind of delight because we tend to get effort confused with pushing. We go from the extreme of pushing to the other extreme of just being lackadaisical, lazy, and apathetic. We don't seem to get this middle way of taking delight, unquote. In this longer and chock-full episode that I'm re-releasing today, I review the whole Eightfold Path, but focus on ways to create a joyful balance. I focus on lots of what I need to learn. I focus on the fact that we all fail, so we shouldn't try to be perfect. I talk about the five hindrances, especially one of my own battles, restlessness. I think many of you will agree. We are so addicted to busy. We need to be busy to keep being busy. 
we seem to have lost our ability, our memory of sitting still. Even in meditation, we can't wait to be done and get up and get at it. We are bored while we're working and we're agitated while relaxing. So now, at the risk of making this an unwieldy podcast episode, I better stop this long intro and let episode 13 run again as episode 89. And the re-release starts now. It's only right for me to move on to the Eightfold Path, where we left off at the sixth part, or right effort. And it's only appropriate that I'm recording this on Labor Day, although it may not be released until uh, tomorrow. You know, the word labor is a synonym for effort, and we're looking at right effort. You know, but like I talked about in the beginning of podcast, uh, beginning of the podcast episodes about Buddhism, um, I framed it as, as having a bad rap, right, for focusing on suffering, um, which have, you've seen by now, if you've listened to these podcasts, it, it doesn't focus on suffering, but instead of focus on easing the discontent and dissatisfaction of everyday life. And sort of like that bad rap about suffering, I think the word effort has a strong connotation of seriousness or maybe even sourness, a, a sour practice or a sour life, you know, dedicated to this uh, mission. You know, it's, it's, it's a sort of the, it's the Protestant work ethic thing. And I'm going to take the sting out of this right effort Protestant work ethic connotation by referring to it as right effort, finding a joyful balance. You know, if you study the available teachings through books, articles, and talks on right effort, the first thing you're going to notice is that it's called a lot of different names. I decided on joyful balance because I think it expresses just the right intent for our everyday Buddhism approach. But you'll also see it revered to as diligence, which is, uh, you know, diligence, I think, still has that sour connotation to me. And in Stephen Batchelor's trans translation of The Way of the Bodhisattva, which he titled A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he titled the chapter about effort, Enthusiasm, or Joyful Effort. Or no, not joyful, joyous effort. So as you can see, the sense of quote-unquote effort, as in quote-unquote labor, is not really the point. From our everyday perspective, it rests more heavily on the first and most important step of the eightfold, eightfold path or right view. Since it's been a little while, let's review the Eightfold Path. Certain parts of it are talking about wisdom, certain parts are ethics, and the other parts are meditation. But it is that right view that's the main support of everything else. And remember, it's not really a path, as in, you know, first I do this, then I move to the next step. You know, not a linear list, like I said, but a circle. By applying this circular, holistic structure to your life, 
and considering it as a unified whole, you can transform yourself from someone who is discontent much of the time, most of the time, or even a little more than you would like of the time, to someone who frees themselves or liberates themselves from that dissatisfaction to a more balanced state of equanimity and contentment. You know, the eight spokes of the wheel of the Eightfold Path, as a review, right view, number one, right intention, number two, right speech, number three, right action, number four, right livelihood, number five. Now, we have covered all those in my podcast series. Now we're at number six, or right effort. And then we will follow that at some point along the line with number seven, right mindfulness, and number eight, right concentration. Those also have go under different names you'll find as you look at things um, on right mindfulness and right concentration, but we'll cover that when we get to that actual podcast. Okay, so the first two, you know, right view and right intention, are grouped under the wisdom category. The next three under ethics. And these three are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the last three are grouped under the umbrella of meditation. So we've now entered the meditation phase of the Eightfold Path. So it starts with right effort and goes to right mindfulness and then right concentration. So in this episode, we're going to look into this meditation spoke of right effort. And we're going to talk about it as as more of a natural thing rather than a, 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 a push, you know. Um, it's a natural energy. Let's think of it that way. Actually, it is taught in this way. Um, it's taught that energy or the word virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A, is the mental factor behind right effort. And it can be a positive energy or a negative energy producing wholesome or unwholesome forms of behavior. You know, the same energy in your life can either power desire, aggression, violence, and ambition, which is considered negative in this aspect, or generosity, self-discipline, kindness, concentration, and understanding. For energy to be a positive contributor to your practice or your desire to rid yourself of discontentment, You know, it needs the guidance of right view and right intention, like I said. The most basic traditional definition of right effort is this, is to exert oneself to develop wholesome qualities and remove unwholesome qualities. You know, as recorded in the Pali Canon, you know, the, the official historic known words of the Buddha that were were recorded the Buddha taught that there were four aspects to right effort. And this is pretty common sense, really. You know, know, Buddhism gets all jumbled up, if you will, when you first start studying it with numbers and lists and things. And, 
you know, you think you got to memorize them. Um, and that's the kind of wrong effort to take, really. Um, I remember going through this, and I did that is a wrong effort, you know, making lists, studying. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think it really, for, for our purposes of everyday Buddhism, it takes away the common senseness of the whole thing. So listen to these four aspects of right effort and see how much sense they make, okay? The first one is the effort to prevent unwholesome qualities, especially greed, anger, and ignorance from arising. The second aspect is the effort to extinguish the unwholesome qualities, qualities that already have arisen. The third is the effort to cultivate skillful or wholesome qualities like generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which are the opposites of the origin of the greed, anger, and ignorance stated in the first aspect. So your the effort in this is to to cultivate these good qualities that you don't really have yet, that have not arisen. And the fourth is the effort to strengthen the wholesome qualities that already ar- arose. In other words, the qualities you already have, but maybe you could have more of. So what is this effort about, right? Let's boil it down to the secret sauce of our everyday Buddhism approach. This effort we're talking about is essentially noticing the bad things you tend to think or do, trying to do something about them, noticing the good qualities you would like to adopt, and trying to get them or strengthen them, right? So that's pretty common sense. But let's rephrase it in these four aspects once again in like a, uh, uh, an everyday what do I do about that sort of thing. So number one, you're to notice areas in your life where you realize you are tempted to feel like, and sometimes maybe going along with the crowd or another person for just a minute or two in a outburst of greed or anger or ignorant thinking or behavior or uh, a feeling of grasping at or feelings of fear or hatred. So number one is to notice areas in your life where you are tempted to do this. Two, notice things about you that you do in your everyday life. So things that you actually do, think, speak on a more frequent basis, not just that you tend to, that you actually do your particular afflictions. This includes noticing when you tend to do them, thinking about what triggers you to do them, then trying to short circuit or lessen the intensity of the triggers so that you don't do them or you don't do them as much. You know, part of right effort is not trying to be perfect. So let's say, instead of saying, you know, short circuit or lessen the intensity of the trigger so you don't do them, let's say, try not to do them as much. Instead of thinking, I'm just not going to do it, and then when you do it, you get extremely disappointed or frustrated when you fail. So number three, noticing areas in your life where you could try to build better habits 
or practice around being more generous, more loving, more wise, more patient. These are the opposites of greed, anger, and ignorance. And number four, noticing where and when you do pretty good in some of these good qualities like generosity or loving kindness or patience or wisdom. And so you see, gee, I'm doing it here. Maybe I should do more of it over there, or maybe I should pick up another good quality that I can add to my daily habits. So this effort practice, you know, this whole thing of right effort is really about trying to be less of a jerk and trying to be a better person. Remember the right intention episode I had on how to be less of a jerk? Well, that's important to effort. Because remember, this Eightfold Path is an integrated holistic system. So central to effort is all the things before. And I believe right view and right intention are like the wind and the rudder to the forward movement of effort as our own personal spiritual practice or trying to be a better person. You know, right view is the wind. It will push you in the, in the correct direction. And right intention is the rudder, which will make smaller adjustments based on y- your intention, which was built on your original right view. Now, what about wrong effort? You know, we're talking about right effort here. What is wrong effort? Well, wrong effort is directing our energy into harmful, destructive trains of thought that distract us and make it difficult, if not impossible, to concentrate. Remember, these these rules came from sort of a teaching meditation approach. So, you know, concentration was the goal. But that's not all that foreign to what we want to accomplish here. You know, mindfulness has become the buzzword practice of of today. Um, And mindfulness is built on concentration. So, you know, if you want to establish a mindfulness practice, or if you just want to be more mindful in in your day-to-day life without, you know, establishing a meditation practice during the day, then you need to find, you need to improve your, your ability to concentrate. And some of these wrong efforts we're going to be talking about will impede your ability to concentrate or be more mindful day to day. You know, the sutra teachings present the things that could impede our concentration. They call them the five hindrances. And they're number one, sensual desire, number two, ill will, number three, dullness and drowsiness, number four, restless, restlessness and worry, and number five, doubt. So now these first two hindrances, sensual desire and ill will, they're the strongest. They represent the, the more powerful sense of greed and aversion at their core, you know, The other three hindrances are a little less toxic, but still they're obstacles to your concentration. So there's something to avoid and they're built on delusion. So 
all these hindrances are built on like two things at their core, you know, greed and aversion. Well, three, three, three things, greed and aversion and delusion. So those are the biggies, right? Those are the biggies that, that mess us up. Greed, aversion, and delusion, right? So sensual desire, the one, the first hindrance is frequently interpreted in two different ways. Okay, first there's that narrow sense as, you know, what you probably thought, lust. But lust for the five strands of sense pleasures as they refer to it. And these are like uh, things that you like, things that you want to grab onto, agreeable things. You So you want, you know, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant touches. But sometimes this sensual desire of the first hindrance is taught more broadly to include any craving for sense pleasures, wealth, power, position, fame, or anything else that craving has a tendency to grip onto. Now, before you think I'm telling you to ignore or isolate yourself from somatic or bodily experiences, I'm not. It's not about not noticing or appreciating somatic experience as a wonderful part of your life. It's even part of the Vipassana practices to to notice bodily sensations. But this is more about avoiding a grasping at them, wanting to keep them so that they become what your focus is on, what your primary thinking is. See, this obstacle is... For example, it's like trying to concentrate on something like our work, right? But our concentration gets distracted by thoughts like, hmm, I think I'll check Twitter, or I should look at that Facebook group, or I really need a pickle or a piece of chocolate. And if you're like me, I sometimes have cravings for both those pickle and chocolate at the same time, and no, I'm not pregnant. So what we're looking at here is sensory pleasures or desires like wanting to eat or wanting to be distracted by social media because we feel bored and so on. You know, we need to put effort into not pursuing each one of those things when they pop up into our mind so that we can stay focused. Maybe a good practice is just try to get rid of, like avoid or sidetrack yourself from um, um, following the urge to get up and go to the kitchen and have something to eat because that was your distraction. Maybe you do need to get up and walk around from your desk a little bit, but if the primary sensory urge was to eat, maybe avoid that unless it is time for you to eat and you're hungry, right? The second hindrance, ill will, is a synonym for aversion, as I was talking about before. There was the base of, you know, greed and aversion and, and uh, delusion. So aversion, it, it is comprised of, the aversion or ill will is comprised of hatred, anger, resentment, any kind of repulsion, whether directed towards other people or even towards ourself. I see that a lot. People Oh, I'm so ugly. Oh, I'm so this. Oh, I'm so that. That's a that's a that's a powerful hindrance to um, right effort, or re- repulsion towards objects or certain situations. You know, repulsion is 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 a grasping in and of itself because 
if we are repulsed by something, we are grasping at not doing it. Okay, so that interrupts our free-flowing sense of equanimity or or the ability to concentrate on what's in front of us right now. Now, the third hindrance, dullness or drowsiness, is a compound of two factors linked together by a common feature of what they call mental unwieldiness. You know, one is dullness, which is like described as mental inertia, or the other is drowsiness, which is described as mental sinking or heaviness of mind or the excessive inclination to sleep. And the fourth hindrance is the opposite of this. Opposite is restlessness and worry. Restlessness is an agitation or excitement which drives the mind from thought to thought with speed and frenzy. And worry is a preoccupation over a past mistake or something bad that happened, and then the anxiety about a possible undesired consequence in the future. Um, and worry is, is, is a downward spiral that some people can never get out of. The third and fourth, to me, the dullness and drowsiness and restless, restless, restlessness and worry seem like epidemics in our current culture. You know, are always on 24-7, everything is breaking news, everything is so important for us to be aware of that it's delivered instantly to our phones. So, man, our minds are either put to sleep or constantly agitated. You know, if you've ever tried to meditate, you are intimately familiar with both the states of mind heaviness and mind frenzy. You know, to me, meditation is, is, is like um, uh, cycling through those things pretty consistently, either within one meditation session or from day to day. You know, some days your mind is like nuts, right? It's it just, it's fr frenzy, franticness is, is how you describe it. And then that can sometimes be transferred or tr transposed into your, to your body, you know, you're like, you feel like one twitching mass of nutsiness. I remember Meg Salter in my interview with her talking about, you know, her, her she had the creepy crawlies on her skin for a while when she was meditating. So I've been through that frenzy, and I've also been through that, you know, mind put to sleep or heaviness, you know. Sometimes you're, you're sitting in your meditation posture, and next thing you know, your head's flopped down onto your chest, or you, or you just don't even remember what you were meditating on, you know. So meditation is a really good sort of a way to practice how your mind is right now. So you know this, but you know, you can check it for yourself outside of meditation in your everyday life. And see if you're also going through those states of uh, agitation and frenziness or dullness and heaviness as you're doing whatever it is you're doing. You know, you can be bored while you're working and agitated while you're relaxing. I see it all the time. I see it in myself and I see it in other people. That bored while you're working sometimes express, expresses itself as you know, going to check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your cup of tea is, Pinterest, um, texting, whatever the thing is. On While you're relaxing, you can be agitated. 
you know, and the, the relaxing, you know, some people say, I'm going home to chill and play a, play a video game, or I'm going home to chill and I'm going to, uh, binge watch this series. You know, that it's, it's a good way to relax, I suppose, if you're relaxed. But I, I, what I see sometimes is a state of agitation. It's not really relaxing. It's avoidance of doing what you were doing before, but getting yourself all agitated and distracted. You know, something I've always tried to remember when I catch my mind thinking it's bored or feeling frenzied to do something other than what I'm doing, which is usually to pick up my phone or switch to the browser tab with the Twitter window open, and it's this. This is what I think. What did I do back before the internet and smartphones? Yes, I was an adult then, and I remember sitting and working without the constant urge to do something else. I just did things. Now, I'm not saying I didn't look out the window once in a while, or pace around the office, or open up a book and read something else, but it wasn't this constant sort of tug to see what's happening somewhere else or to see what somebody's doing. It just wasn't there. Or I think about people before TV and news delivered hourly or daily. This is even pre-pre-before the internet, before we could just switch on cable news and, you know, get the latest rundown on who's, uh, who's the latest bad guy in Washington, right? They just did their days. Those people, they just did what they did. That's it. They did what is what is in front of them. You know, this is really a habit. Culture isn't forced on us, right? It's just there. But it's our habit on whether we want to participate in it or not. It is not a need to know. We don't need to know what's going on every minute, but it's a habit to do it. Do we really need to know what is going on everywhere in the world right this minute or even today? Can we go a day without knowing? If you've gone away with your family for a vacation or a camping trip or whatever and decided I'm not taking my phone, you know, the world didn't stop. (laughs) It just didn't stop. So how does this knowing what's going on every minute really help you? or help your family, or help your friends. I get off on a tangent there, right? So let's go to the fifth hindrance, or doubt. You know, when doubt is taught as the fifth hindrance, it's not the kind of doubt like that's required to be an intelligent person, required to have a critical view or a wise view. This is the, that kind of doubt, you know, the Buddha encourages. It's the, but it's the kind of doubt, that insidious doubt, that manifests as a chronic indecisiveness or a lack of resolution or a fear to make a move. It's a persistent inability to commit oneself. And, you know, I think this hindrance, too, back on my tangent, has been strengthened by our culture of constant exposure to successful business people. Actors, celebrities, artists, writers, etc. You know, we doubt ourselves because our world, our culture, through all its presentation in every sort of media channel, is holding up all these people as shining examples of perfect, which means we're not perfect, right? We're not even close. So why try? 
But see, all these people, they become caricatures of themselves. We see only their richness, their success, their beauty, their athletic prowess. We don't see who they really are or their worries or their doubts. That's not presented to us. We're not privy to that. Or we see all the ugliness and the meanness in our world, forced in our face 24-7, especially in recent years. You know, in the last two years, I, I think, or more, you know, during this previous presidential campaign, we're just, we're just constantly bombarded with meanness and divisiveness. So it's like our minds do have to go almost into a state of turn off or frenzy. And generally we say, okay, what's the use? Why should I even try to be a better person? Why should I even try to help? Look how the world is. You know, I won't go down either of these paths in this episode. I don't have time for that, but maybe we can pursue it at another time. That path of our cultural mean-spiritedness or the epidemic of suicide. But it seems to me, anyway, that the constant media bombardment on our minds and our heart minds of this caricature-like goodness of people and the caricature-like badness of people in the world is the primary cause of both of these epidemics of other hate, mean-spiritedness, divisiveness, and even possibly suicide. Beyond the obstacles to concentration, traditional teachings outline three major types of destructive ways of thinking. They are thinking covetously, thinking with malice, and thinking with antagonism. Okay, so thinking covetously. Thinking covetously entails thinking with jealousy about what others have achieved or the pleasures and material things they enjoy. It's like thinking, how can I get this for myself? You know, wow, look at that house they have. Look at that car. Wow. Look at this. Look at that job. Look at whatever. And this type of thinking comes from attachment. We don't like that somebody else has these things that we don't have, whether it be success, a new car, a great job. It could be anything. And if we get into this state of mind, it is obviously disturbing. And it can cause what I refer to as that stickiness of the mind. If we allow our mind to tell ourselves covetous stories, we tend to repeat them over and over again. You know, perfectionism actually can, I talked about that a little bit before, but perfectionism can actually also fall under this heading of covetousness. Think about it. We covet being perfect, right? Perfection, I know this because it's one of the afflictions I have suffered with. And I still suffer with it, although not as much as I used to. I think it is covetous because I'm coveting a state of perfection that I want, but I don't have. Even though there's no such thing as perfect, we, we tend to see how we can outdo ourselves or outdo someone or some other measure of what perfect is to us that we hold as an objective. It's almost like a jealousy of oneself by being attached to an image of ourselves that isn't real and not therefore attainable. 
I know, I know, I can almost hear the voices arguing that we, of course, should always try to be perfect ourselves. But no, that's not right effort. We, of course, should try to be aware of where we can do better and where we have slipped into bad habits. But establishing a goal of perfection is not the way to do it. That's out of balance. That's not balanced, joyous effort. The second type of thinking we need to avoid is thinking with malice. Thinking with malice is thinking about how to harm someone. Now, I know most of the time you can't identify this. We're not going around thinking about how I can hurt somebody or how I can kill somebody. But more, but for our purposes, our everyday Buddhist purposes, this harm is typically verbal, right? Like if this person says or does something I don't like, I will get even by saying something that offends them or calls them out. We think about what we'll do or say the next time we see that person, or we regret that we didn't say something back to them when they said something bad to us. But it, it gets to be sticky, right? It sticks into our minds and we can't get it out of our heads. So much so that again, that person becomes a caricature of themselves. That person becomes the other, quote unquote. And we are mesh ourselves so deeply into their otherness, their wrongness, that we aren't able to pause to see them just as they are, just like us. Another person who is seeking the same happiness that we are, but going about it in an awkward way sometimes, just like us. We do it too. The next kind of thinking is thinking distortedly with antagonism. Actually, all this is distorted thinking, but this particular part is called distorted antagonistic thinking. It's where, like, um, it's where your perspective is so right for you, right in your mind that you think every other person's way of thinking or doing something is wrong. Like, if someone is trying to improve themselves or help others improve, right? based on the way they think they should do it. We think it's incorrect because it's not based on the way we think things should be done. So we sort of classify them as stupid, or we say what they're doing is useless. It's ridiculous to try to help anyone or something like that. Being antagonistic, it's, it's, it's such an example of your own thinking being distorted. It's not an example of anything anyone else does. It all starts inside of you. Think about that. Antagonism starts inside of you. You can never say that someone made you do it, and you never can say that it's justified. Because it isn't. You made it up. I hear this sort of criticism of, criticism of others a lot. It's not criticism of like bad motives like, someone committing a crime or something. But it's criticism of any motives or any perspectives or any interests other than what you might have. You know, so I hear this like some people don't like sports and think that other people who do or watch football or soccer or hockey or even my loved baseball on television or go to see a team play are completely stupid and what they're doing is a complete waste of time. Thinking that someone else's activities or perspectives is stupid or a waste of time is antagonistic. And nobody made you do it, right? Or someone else tries to help a beggar or a, a homeless person on the street by giving them money. And you think, 
Oh, you're really stupid for doing that. They're just going to go out and buy a bottle. So if we constantly think about how stupid other people are, right, or how whatever they're doing is irrational, we'll never be able to concentrate on what we are doing, on what we are doing, which is the only way we can help ourselves, anyone else, or the world. So this is right effort. Right effort is directing our energy away from harmful, destructive trains of thoughts and towards the development of beneficial ways of thinking. But we just have to try. It's not hard either. Well, that's not too hard. But we don't want to try too hard, right? We don't want to make it like, a, oh, make it like a, I have to do this, you know, I have to do this immediately. It's the only way I'm going to be enlightened. It's 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 just I'm going to try to be better. I'm not going to try too hard, but I'm not going to be too laid back about it either. I'm going to be just right about it like Goldilocks. But the key here is just to try. Just first try to notice, to find out what is happening. Like I said just a little bit ago, notice when you typically do unskillful things. Notice when you tend to do them. Notice thinking about what triggers you to do them. Then try to short circuit or lessen the intensity of those triggers so that you don't do them or don't do them as much. But it doesn't mean judging yourself. Don't be the judgmental God of you. We need to apply skillful means. Be like a gentle, kind parent with a small child. Don't grasp at the perfect or the failures. Just try. Then try again. And try again with that gentle parent inside of you encouraging you. And pretty soon you'll build one good habit and maybe you'll get rid of one triggered behavior. And then the trick is to maintain the behavior which is the second part of this whole right effort thing. This is such a good everyday practice. It isn't some cave-dwelling monk or three-month month retreat practice. This is about doing something right now, then again later today, then again tomorrow. It is every day. It's a little habit. After a little habit. After another little habit. This is really what life is, isn't it? Ugh, that sounds kind of like Peggy Lee, and is that all there is, doesn't it? But really, no, life is like that, isn't it? This everyday Buddhism stuff is about doing the little things every day. It's not a holy attitude. It's an attitude of relaxing into your life, little by little, with a feeling of everything is all right, right now. That's what really is holy. Your life is holy. This life, this world, and your part in it. And so is your husband's, your wife's, your mother's, and the guy next door, and your annoying co-worker. And since it's all holy ground here, right? We've established it. It's all holy ground. We should try to make it better for ourselves and the guy next door in any small way we can like the way we drive, or the way we wait in line, or the way we walk around the building at work, or the way we eat. Doesn't all of this earn our respect, our awareness, 
our attention, our caring, our kindness? Isn't this what is holy? Isn't this what is sacred? So back to that little habit after little habit after another little habit stuff. You know, there are a lot of things in each of our lives that could benefit from a little more awareness, a little more attention, and a little more caring, isn't there? Do you know, take some time to think about this today and tomorrow. Maybe list two or three things that you do that you could try harder not to do, or and then two or th- three things that you could try to incorporate in your life to make yourself and those around you happier. As I said before, it's about paying attention. It's about noticing. This is, in essence, right effort. This is the hard part. Adjusting your habits after noticing them isn't nearly as tough. You know, there's a Zen story about a student asking his master about the essence of the teachings. And the teacher's the teacher, the master, answered with one word attention. So the student asked again in a different way, requesting, okay, not just the essence, but the whole of the teachings and how the student should practice them. To this, the master replied, attention, attention. So then the student tried one more time in desperation, asking if there wasn't another teaching the master could offer. And the master replied, yes, attention, attention, attention. So tell you what, I'm going to put myself on the spot here in front of God, Buddha, all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, my family, my friends, and my spouse and partner. You know, they're the hardest. I'm first going to list two things I'm going to try to slowly eliminate, followed by two things I'm going to try to do more of. So, okay, here you go. This is a challenge, you know. If you haven't figured it out, if I do this, you got to do it too. So I'm going to try to eliminate one, impatience with my family, which is spouse and doggies, when I'm under pressure, I'm under the pressure of time constraints or frustrations of feeling inadequate and unprepared. Now you'll notice here that I've already taken the first big step by knowing what my triggers are, time constraints and frustrating feelings. Those are the things that cause impatience in me. So That intention is first to be aware of the feelings, right? Then you can adjust the habit. But most of the time, we're not aware of the feelings and the feelings kick off or trigger our unwholesome behavior. The second thing I'm going to try to eliminate is making a quick judgment comment. I know we all do it. It's human nature to make a quick judgment about someone, but... If we don't comment on it, don't elaborate on it, like don't comment on it in our own mind or to others, then that judgment can disappear. So I'm going to try to get eliminate that. And I'm going to try to incorporate two things. Number one, when I feel driven or feel the tug of perfectionism, I'm going to try purposely get up get away from the thing that's making me feel like that, walk around the yard or do a 10-minute meditation. Pretty soon I won't be thinking about being perfect about that thing. Or what usually happens is in the walking away from it, I know exactly what to do and now I'm not freaked out about it anymore. 
Number two, I will try to always be conscious of listening more than speaking and try to never interrupt. Never is a bad word. It's perfection. So, okay, I'll try not to interrupt. So ask yourself, where do you make maybe too much effort or not enough? Where are you lazy or running on habit? Where are you too externally focused or too internally focused? You know, it's really about looking at yourself, about looking at the people in the world outside of your own head and noticing, really notice. Pause those head stories and notice what's going on around you. Notice what you are doing. Notice what are your habits and then notice what triggers those habits. You know, our habits have a pretty powerful hold on us. We sleepwalk through our days with our habits in the lead. That's how it looks to me. But once we try changing up one bad habit or adding one good one, and it works, it's empowering. And I think that is so because it plays against rather than with our overachievement, perfectionism, Protestant work ethic way of being in the world. You know, it's much more beneficial as a productive practice, as a spiritual practice, because this is much more about not clinging to some idea of perfection or enlightenment or Buddhahood or nirvana, but much more about letting go of little habits. And that letting go is a surrender of your false nature of self. As in, this is the way I do things, or this is the way I sh- or th- way things should be done. Those are states of achievement, right? They're states of going after something, grasping at something. But we're ta- not talking about grasping. We're talking about opening it up the hand and letting it go. It's about being in whatever now is. Being in it in a balanced way. Because this type of effort, this practice of attention, as the Zen master says, is less about labor or effort, but more about your attention to what is happening now in your life, in yourself, in your family, in your friends, and your coworkers. Now is the key. What's happening now? What's, you can't worry if you're thinking about what's happening now. Right? You can't be distracted when you think about what's happening now. So when you really start to see how things are, you tend to respond and live appropriately and in balance. Now, you might think right effort means practicing hard. But like I said earlier, it's not a driven practice. It's much more about the middle way between extremes. You know, the Buddha, when he first started practicing, he made a mistake of that too. He went out and practiced with the aesthetics because that was all that was available to him at the time. That's what he saw. That was his culture. And he practiced by not eating, right? That was what the, what the aesthetics that he was hanging around with did to the point that he ruined himself nearly until someone offered him some milk. Um, but his, he practiced so hard that his back showed through his front. There was nothing in the middle. So don't force yourself to endure anything 
about meditation practices or fitness practices or nutrition practices or study practices to the point of exhaustion or frustration or damage to your mind or body. If things become a chore, think again. Start again. You know, Titnat Han says the fourfold right diligence is nourished by joy and interest. If your practice does not bring you joy, you are not practicing correctly. The Buddha taught that practice should be like a well-tuned string instrument. You know, if the strings are too loose, they won't play anything. There'll be no sound. And if they're too tight, they break. Practice should be like that, that perfect balance. It should be nourishing, not draining. You know, in the way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva, which, by the way, is a how-to interpretation of the way to practice the Buddha's teachings and be a Bodhisattva, Shantideva put these practices into verse. He structured his chapter focus on the bones of the Eightfold Path. So his seventh chapter is called Diligence. It's about right effort. In it, he writes about this balance of effort and how it should be more about the joyfulness of the task. For example, I'll give you um, three verses that sort of give you the sense of the balance Shantideva points out. Verse 2, Diligence means joy in virtuous ways. Its contraries have been defined as laziness, an inclination for unwholesomeness, defeatism, and self-contempt. And in chapter 67, or verse 67 of his chapter 7, he said, If impaired by weakness or fatigue, I'll lay the work aside, the better to resume, and I will leave the task when it's complete all avid for the work that's next to come. See, that's not blind adherence to some forceful practice. It's an understanding and attention to what's going around him, on around him and in him, a weakness or a fatigue. Then let's not, don't do the task. And in the last verse of chapter 7, verse 76, he says, Just as flaxen threads waft to and fro, impelled by every breath of wind, so all I do will be achieved, controlled by movements of a joyful heart. See, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. As long as I keep a joyful heart and keep attention to what's going on around me. And as another way to motivate this joyful effort in you, this is what the Dhammapada says. One person on the battlefield conquers an army of a thousand persons. Another conquers himself, and that is greater. Conquer yourself, not others. Discipline yourself, and thereupon learn freedom. I'll end this podcast with a suggestion for an easy practice uh, or a mind guideline you can take up with joyous effort. It is a practice offered by the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, offered by our sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabose. Using this practice to observe and guide your thoughts and behavior, 
you will be practicing right effort in a balanced way. You can find it on the central website of Bright Dawn, which I will post in my show notes. And then you would click on the tab, Spiritual Resources, where you'll find this practice. It's called the Five Daily Guidelines. And there's many more practices and resources that might be helpful for you on that Spiritual Resources page of brightdawn.org. So here are the five daily life guidelines. Number one, consume mindfully. Eat sensibly and don't be wasteful. Pause before buying. See if breathing might be enough. Pay attention to the effects of media that you consume. Number two, share loving kindness. Consider other people's views deeply. Work for peace at every level. Spread joy, not negativity. Number three, practice gratitude. Respect the people encountered. They are our teachers. Be equally grateful for opportunities and challenges. Notice where help is needed and be quick to act. And number four, discover wisdom. Find connections between teachings and daily life. Don't get attached to conclusions. Mute that judgmental tongue. And the fifth daily guideline is accept constant change. Be open to whatever arises in every moment. Cultivate beginner's mind. Just keep going. Keep going. That's it for this episode. Next up, some announcements. A big announcement is our Introduction to Buddhism course returns and starts on Wednesday, May 17th, 2023 at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The course is a real-life approach to living the Noble Eightfold Path based on the course text, Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Teachings and Practices for Real Change, by me, Wendy Shinyohalet. It also includes custom handouts I have created for reflection and discussion during the weekly sessions. Additionally, our popular course facilitator and everyday Buddhism teacher and lay minister with the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, Robert Uno Allender Sensei, returns to lead the course, and he wants you to know that he loves you. And that's one of Bob Sensei's hallmarks. He will present focused Dharma insights in each class while gently guiding you through the material. Now, the virtual Zoom course is free to everyday Buddhism community and everyday Sangha members. It runs 10 weeks from Wednesday, May 17th through Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, with a break at the sixth week on June 25th, 21st, uh, which is the summer solstice. You can find a link to the details and registration in the show notes. Remember, if you aren't already a member of the membership community or the Everyday Sangha, you have an opportunity to do that and register for the course. Again, the details in the show notes. And as always, a reminder that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. 
The Sangha has recently begun a new study of the book Heart of the Shin Buddhist Path, A Life of Awakening by Takamaro Shigaraki. Our meetings consist of uh, service first, which includes a short meditation period, traditional vow recitations, and other invocations, including refuge, bodhisattva vows, etc., and some chanting. The service introduces a more ritual and liturgical component into the structure of our meeting, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or sangha. The service includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, and many times a Dharma glimpse by a volunteer Sangha member. After the service, we open it up to discussion of the current book study or anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks. Please consider joining the Sangha to be a part of the study, the practice, and a warm and welcoming Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha by viewing the latest bonus YouTube podcast where me, Bradley Janayo-sensei, and Terry Hoskin, both of who are our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. You can also support this podcast and other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, and a private group on a non-Facebook platform. Now, if you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms that we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha or register for the course. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either the tab that says Join Member Community or Join Everyday Sangha. I thank all of you who contribute in this way through the member community, just one on t- you know one-time donations to the Everyday Sangha or when you buy me a coffee on my website. This podcast and the community and Sangha depend on your donations to continue to exist. I don't seek podcast sponsors and don't ask for financial commitments through paid podcast memberships. So all the work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded except for your donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's Donate tab. You can find the links in the show notes. And thanks, too, to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I read everything, but of course, I can't always respond. But I'd love to respond to everyone. Actually, I just responded to somebody with a question, and it inspired me to uh, set up a time to have a whole podcast episode devoted to that question. So you never know. Another way you can help this podcast is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why you love Everyday Buddhism. Okay, that's all for the announcement. Announcements. So until next time, keep 
finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.